My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to help you make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you, put it in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me, be nice, at Jim Kramer. At this point in the business cycle, the point where the Fed is champing at the bit to keep tightening, we actually want bad news if we're bullish. Weaker than expected data helped this market power higher today. Dow roaring 432 points, S&P surging 1.57%, NASDAQ polling 1.58%. And bizarrely enough, the best thing for this market would be getting some disappointing news from the non-farm payroll report on Friday. Bye, bye, bye! How did we get to this point? Because on October 3rd and October 4th, this stock market had a Kafka-esque metamorphosis, transferring bull into bear. As my friend Ed Yardini accounts in this incredibly good Yardini report, Fed Chief Jerome Powell on October 3rd told Judy Woodruff on PBS that the really accommodative low interest rates that we needed when the economy was quite weak, we don't need these anymore. At the same time, Powell is quoted by this network as saying, quote, interest rates are still accommodative, but we are gradually moving to a place where they will be neutral. We may go past neutral, but we're a long way from neutral at this point, probably. Next day, that's the day Vice President Pence laid out the administration's Cold War battle plan against China in a speech that I think could easily lead you to believe that the White House actually favors regime change in the People's Republic. Pence talked about how China's waging a multi-front campaign against America. He said Beijing is employing a whole-of-government approach using political, economic, and military tools, as well as propaganda to, influence its, uh, to advance its influence and benefit its interests in the U.S. Whether or not you think he was being accurate or alarmist, this speech made it crystal clear that the administration believes that the trade war is about a whole lot more than trade. To quote Pence again in this remarkable speech, the Communist Party has set its sights on controlling 90% of the world's most advanced industries, including robotics, biotechnology, and artificial intelligence. Then Pence talks about how we funded China's military and industrial expansion with our trade deficit, propping up the Communist government's ability to tamp down on dissent and bankroll tyranny all over the globe. This was something right out of the Cold War against the Soviet Union. He laid out a plan to uh, prevent China from surpassing the United States, and the White House thinks we do that by cutting off trade until they decide to play fair. In other words, this speech might as well have been called the Pence Doctrine. The White House is going to stop commerce with China until the regime changes its ways on trade, something that's highly unlikely. Obviously, you do not negotiate with someone you're trying to overthrow. That is usually very, un, let's just say, unlikely to have an optimal uh, ending. Now, for many people on Wall Street, this kind of talk is indeed unnerving. Basically, the administration is taking what I call the goldfinger approach to China, as in, do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. The market really wants to see some kind of deal, but the White House is fine with no deal as long as it destabilizes the Chinese Communist Party. No talk. Mm-mm. If you look back at the turmoil that's characterized this miserable month, it all started right there with that dispiriting remark from Jerome Powell, both in both interviews, and Mike Pence, one two punch we're still reeling from. Ever since the action has been controlled by the Fed and the president. Yesterday, we took a header when we heard that the president's going to slap tariffs on everything China sells if this upcoming talks with President Xi break down. And look, we deserve to go down that. 
I think there's no way the Chinese government will give in to Trump's demands, at least not the ones laid out by Mike Pence earlier this month. This is the thing the White House doesn't get. The Communist Party derives its legitimacy from standing up to the West, especially the United States. I don't think they can accept a seemingly one-sided deal. Theoretically, there should be a silver lining here, though. More tariffs mean slower economic growth worldwide, which should cause the Fed to curb its enthusiasm for raising interest rates. But instead, the Fed seems to view tariffs as inflationary since they make goods more expensive. And inflation makes the Fed even more eager to tighten. You need to understand that every single piece of data is now being scrutinized through this good news is bad news prism. Well, weaker data now drives stocks up and stronger data sends us lower. Take today. It's classic. This morning, we got the S&P Case-Shiller's 20-city housing index, and it showed only at a very anemic 0.1% bump in the lowest uh, for its uh, annual increase in 20 years. That's the lowest annual increase in, I'm sorry, in 20 months. That's the bad news of bullshit one. But on the other hand, the hawkish pal could say home prices have still risen 5.5% over the last year. On still the third hand, the bulls could argue that this trajectory for home prices will decline next month. Unfortunately, Powell is so gung-ho about raising interest rates that we'll probably need to see that decline happen before he considers changing his mind. So I thought there was something for the hawk and something for the dove here. Sometimes it's downright ludicrous. Marty Musi, the CEO of Paychex, was on Squawk Box this morning, where he said that his proprietary business sentiment survey showed an uptick. Entrepreneurs are more positive in nearly every aspect of business this fall compared to early summer, the report said. Boo, hiss. That's not what we want to see. But wait a second. The Paychex IHS Market Small Business Employment Watch numbers came out today, too, and they gave us the negativity we're hoping for. Get this one. Hourly earnings rose 0.08 to 2.4% year over year, while job growth decreased 0.77% from a year ago. That's right, decreased 0.77. Aha, that means workers have gotten too expensive, so companies aren't hiring as many people as they were. That is key. But before you get too excited... Conference Board's Consumer Confidence Index just rose to an 18-year high. Some, unfortunately, good news that gives Powell more ammo. And uh, Steve uh, Leisman learned from Janet Yellen that she's worried about an overheating economy. However, she's also worried about volatility. Oil is plummeting, having one of its worst months in ages. But if the price of crude is falling so precipitously, how the heck can the economy be too hot to handle? Does that make any sense to you? Maybe it was going to 80. The battle plays out not just with big macro data, but also in the micro. Uh, what does it mean that Under Armour had a much better than expected quarter, allowing the stock to rally 27%? David Faber this morning asked me, isn't that a convincing bit of anecdotal evidence that Powell could be right? But Carl Cantanini immediately came back and said, whoa, wait a second. It was strengthened internationally, did it? I said it was really a reflection that Under Armour's had bad, bad inventory has finally been cleaned up. One way, another way, one way, another way. Who cares about Under Armour? When GE just reported a staggering loss, cut its dividend dramatically. Sending its stock down 8.8% to 10 bucks and change, a level we haven't seen since April 2009. Bad numbers from G. What a lifesaver. Oh, and Facebook reported tonight the stock was up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down and then down and up and up, uh, which inspires neither confidence nor fear, frankly. Now, let's sum this one up. If you want stocks to go higher, we need to see definitively mixed. Not, but look, we don't want to see bad data because then the companies aren't going to make the numbers. We just need to see mixed data, mixed data like the figures we got today. That allows Powell to put his rate hikes on hold after the next tightening in December, which I favor. Because if the economy's already slowing, then he can say, you know what, the data's weak. Let's wait and see. Bottom line. Never forget, when the Fed's tightening at this point in the business cycle, bad news, bad news is good news. The more bad news we get, the more fabulous days like today we can have. 
Powell and his colleagues just need to be willing to look at the data to make a more thoughtful, prudent evaluation after they've moved once in the month of December. I need to go to Alex in New Jersey. Alex. Dr. Kramer, how are you? I am real good. How about you, Alex? Good to hear. Fine. Thanks for asking. Hey, I wanted to get your opinion on a stock that's been falling since its IPO. While it's still popular amongst the younger crowd, with new integrations to get users to stay on the platform, along with its not-so-horrific earnings, do you think it has a chance for a buyout down the road or possible recovery for investors that have been holding for a while? Given a new partnership with Brave Bison, maybe even a buyout from Facebook to add to their collection, whose earnings were somewhat decent today. The company I'm talking about is Snap. What's your thought? Snap? Yeah, uh, you know. S- Snap? Was that it? Okay, here's the problem with Snap. Uh, I feel that Snap does not have good advertising sales, and I think that they are not well run. And they have this kind of non-public uh, market uh, capitalization. So I don't th- I'm not putting any uh, buy out there, and I think the company is losing a lot of money very fast. So I'm not that bullish on the thing. Let's go to David Illinois, please. David. Hello. Booyah, Jim. How you doing? I am good. How about you? Good. Uh, Aurora, ACB, uh, moved to the New York Exchange on October 23rd. Since then, the stock has gone down over 40 percent. What are your thoughts on Aurora? Yeah, now let's just clarify what I've been saying about the cannabis stocks. I said that all the stocks, with the exception of Canopy, are bad. Okay, all of them. And that you shouldn't own any of them except for Canopy. The idea was is if you're going to own a pot stock, that's the only one that I'm countenancing. I wanted all the others sold. And that's what I've been saying. And the idea was get out of the others. If you have to have some cannabis, then you go with Canopy. Canopy's been horrible, but it's been a lot better than all the others. I need you to forget good news. What we're really looking for is a mixture of good and bad news like we had today. And that's what we really want to have happen if you are constructive towards stocks. If you're destructive, you want only good news. We'll make money tonight. This market is taking its juice from the NFL. I'll tell you how your football and your finances can go hand in hand. Then there's no disputing it's been a tough bump for the market. But if we've seen this play out before, I'm giving my take when we go off the charts. And it's a company you may never have heard of, and it just pre-announced a knockout quarter and it moved all of tech. With the stock heading higher today, is now the time to buy Emmett Corporation? I'm sitting down with the CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. month I've been thinking about the power of negative thinking. I have to wonder, is this a reprieve from the power of negative thinking? Is this session important? It's always hard to tell on these things. Now, I like to think of an individual session like a football game. You got to play quarterback. You need to know if you should hand off the ball or maybe pass it. So you have to do a check down to make sure you're doing the right thing. Today's session was uniquely like a football game with four quarters. The opening, the first quarter, the market took a header. You can't nearly see necessarily from here. It was the NASDAQ which was much worse than the Dow, finally opened down. Remember, I keep telling you we need a down opening, okay? Then the second quarter, well, that was bullish. And even though there's a little bit of rockiness there, it kept going higher, all right? 
Uh, but around noon, the bears clawed their way uh, all the way back, and it was looking pretty dire until the fourth quarter when we got a terrific rally. Wow. Look at that, man. So there's one, two, three, four. Uh, remember, I told you that there have been many sessions within, a, within an individual session. I like to think of them as the quarters. This kind of session, you're looking for themes that transcend the game. So here's what I saw that justified the rally. And again, this is not this is kind of backward looking, not forward looking. But first, the S&P proprietary oscillator that I pay a fortune for finally hit negative six. Remember, Karen Kramer, who ran the trading desk of my old firm, was a true believer that you can't stay short past minus five. And you have to buy something, force yourself to buy something at minus six. Her trading discipline said you need to be what we call money in. Meaning that at the end of the day, you should be putting more money to work than you're taking out. Yes, the oscillator is that important. It's only ever been really wrong during situations where we have systemic risk, like we saw during the Great Recession. I have said many times that we're not going to have a recession, but we could have a severe slowdown if the Fed isn't careful. We've got to monitor the volatility, as Janet Yellen said. So I think the oscillator could be telling the truth. And it's, it's only natural that the negative readings produce a bounce. Minus six, bounce. Check. Second, we're, we're almost reaching the end of the month of October, which should relieve some selling pressure because that's the end of the fiscal year for so many mutual funds. Today and tomorrow tend to be seasonally strong days. Third, we finally had the fabled down opening that I've been praying for. You know, it's been picked off so often whenever the market rallies in the morning or you open big, you come to work and boom, the bulls have been picked off and beheaded over, over and over. Didn't happen today. We had a not so hot opening. And then stocks roared higher, particularly the Nasdaq, which opened very badly. For some groups have been stuck in horrendous bear market mode. Groups like the defense stocks finally caught a bid, something that seemed impossible yesterday. Looks like defense contractors are coming down so far to actually attract buyers, even with the midterm elections a week away. And so many afraid that the Democrats could take the House and sell the stocks because, well, you know, they favor probably a lower defense budget. The semiconductor stocks bounced, too. Something else that seemed inconceivable 24 hours ago. NVIDIA, one of the worst performing stocks in the group, down 100 points from its high. Finally gained 9%. Wow. Kemet, KEM, a gigantic capacitor company, in, very in sync with semis, reported an outstanding quarter, which signified strong semiconductor demand for autos, communication, and the Internet of Things. I think it was integral to the rally. We're going to speak to them later. Last but not least, we got a good interpretation on bad news. I, I, we haven't seen this during this whole month. Masco, the big maker of kitchen and bath fixtures, reported a ugly miss and slashed its outlook. Man, oh, man, it was hideous. So ugly that you had to believe not only would its savage Masco down 10, maybe 15 percent would bring the whole group down with it. Nope. Masco stocks actually exploded higher, finishing about 7 percent up. When a stock rallies from really bad news, that's a classic sign that a bottom may be at hand. Now, the power of negative thinking still held sway with Amazon, and the gloom was palpable for General Electric after the company took a gigantic charge and a huge dividend cut. IBM got hit for a second day on its purchase of Red Hat, which seems silly to me. MasterCard delivered beautiful quarters, uh, beautiful earnings, beautiful. But like the first day of yesterday, the stock got slammed anyway, showing the vulnerability of the once, uh, let's say, uh, uh, immune financial technology group. Meanwhile, Pfizer and Allegan fell deep into the drug doghouse. Still, a quarterback could find five open targets today. The oscillator's negative six reading. The end of the horrendous month of October. A down opening that didn't hurt anybody. A couple of bear markets that look like they may be morphing into bulls. And we had a positive interpretation of the negative earnings from Masco. Wow. Five receivers wide open. Let's see if tomorrow's game gets a long-awaited 
winning streak. Ronald in Pennsylvania. Ronald. Hello, Jim. Hi. Hey, thanks for your many years of good guy, great guidance, and fly, Eagles, fly. Fly, Eagles, fly. Thank you so much. Hey, I love Golden Tate. That was a good pickup. What's going on? Um, Jim, in uh, 2010, I bought stock in Plum Creek Lumber, which was eventually bought by Warehouser. Right. Uh, lately, they've been dealing with hurricanes, fires, rate hikes, tariffs, and their CEO is retiring. They had a bad third quarter, and they guided for fourth quarter not that good. The good news is, for me personally, I'm playing with a house's money. Half the stocks I own are from dividend and reinvesting, and they pay a better than 5% dividend. Two questions. Do you think the dividend's safe? And do you think the stock should be sold or held? Yeah, this thing has been absolutely killed. It's part of the reason why I say that the Fed has to be careful. You don't get a stock like this down 25% if things are so good in the economy. This is what people at the Fed should be looking at, not some facts and figures put together by 26-year-olds, for heaven's sake. I think the dividend is safe. But I've got to tell you, what does that stock say? It says, be careful, Fed. Warehouse or stock is telling the truth. All right, have we overcome the power of negative thinking, at least for this session? I saw some things today that justified the rally. Let's see if tomorrow's game of four quarters, don't forget, don't get too greedy at the top, gives us a winning streak. Let's run everybody ahead. Wondering what the best course of action is when it comes to this market? I'm going to check out the technicals. I think they could be a good guide here. I'm going to go off the charts. Then, Kemet Corporation shares have fallen about 40% since July. But could today's rise after its pre-announced earnings signal positive things to come? And it's a company that's trying to find a solution to the leading cause of death globally. I'll reveal the name. It's exciting. Stay with Kramer. After a nice break from the seemingly endless agony of October today, it's time to take a step back, maybe take stock of where we are. You know, I've been cautioning you about this market. Between the Fed's rate hikes and the president's tariffs, we're seeing some serious deterioration in a host of key industries. That's translated into stock payment for the stock market. Again, didn't see it today, but you know that's what's going on. When things get really painful, it's all too easy to become emotional. And emotion is the bane of smart investing. When everyone's panicking, you need to take a more empirical view of the situation. And when everyone gets euphoric all at once, you need to be calm and ask, perhaps, you should be selling into strength. That's why tonight we're going off the charts with Bob Lang. He's the founder of ExplosiveOptions.net, as well as being the brilliant technician in the two-man all-star team behind the street.com's Trifecta Stocks newsletter that I like so much. And he's also the author of Know Your Options. Why do we want to take our cue from the charts here? Okay, this is important. Technical analysis done right is quantitative, not qualitative meaning it's emotion-free. When you look at the price action or the volume in a stock to see where the big money's been flowing, it requires no guesswork. It's not subjective. But how does pouring over these pictographs of the action help us discern the future? Because the chart's all about trying to approximate human behavior. And that's why technicians are always looking for patterns that tend to repeat over and over and over again. And these patterns repeat. Because when it comes to managing money, we all exist on a spectrum between fear which is what gripped us yesterday, and greed gripping us today. According to Lang, most people like to cluster near the center of the spectrum. We're more comfortable in crowds. That's why I'm always telling you investors are herd animals. But when the market moves to one extreme or the other, the herd follows. And that's what we've seen lately. Fear has spread through Wall Street like an epidemic. 
Now, you know that I've been negative, but it's worth pointing out that over a long enough period of time, why am I usually longer term positive and constructive? Because the market goes higher. That's been the whole story of my career. The problem is, in the long run, we're all dead. Like I told you last night, one of my best calls ever was in October of 2008, when I told you to get back, uh, get the heck out before a breakdown that sent the Dow plummeting from 10,200 to around 6,500 in a matter of months. If you can avoid a short-term bloodbath, that's what you should do if you think there will be a bloodbath. We often hear you should buy when there's blood in the streets, buy when it feels worse. And that's absolutely true. But is that where we are right now? I always try to judge this. It's one of the reasons why I pay so much attention intraday to the market. But here's what Bob Lang says. He says we're not out of the woods. He points out the averages still aren't that far from their highs. And if the Fed keeps tightening aggressively, the earnings estimates will need to get slashed across a host of industries. And you know I agree with that. But let's see what the charts tell us. Let's go through the major averages, starting with the weekly chart of the S&P 500. You can see the S&P has already erased all of its gains for the year. But Lang thinks it could have more downside. Why? First, the darn thing just made its first weekly close below the 50-week moving average. Okay, so that's the blue, all right? See that right there? Uh, this, by the way, this is the first time since early 2016. And this is something that really spooks chart watchers. Second, the moving average convergence divergence, that's the MACD as we call it. It's a tool that helps technicians predict changes in securities trajectory. Made a bearish crossover earlier this month. This is something I always respect, I have to admit, and it's the first one since the meltdown uh, in February, you know, we have to pay close attention to that. Until the MACD recovers, which could take several weeks, according to Lang, he thinks the S&P could keep trending lower. And any rallies like the one we got today are selling opportunities because they're just temporary. Keep this in mind. Remember what I'm saying. We got very euphoric today. Maybe might want to lighten up on some things. But what if we zoom out and look at the S&P's monthly chart? First thing that jumps out at us is that we really haven't come down that far from the highs. Lang points out that this will be the S&P's first down month since March. The MACD is on the verge of making a bearish crossover here. Take a look at this. You see that? You got to look pretty close, but it's there. Uh, that will be the first time since early 2015. How low can we go? Lang thinks that the S&P could potentially fall to 2,300, and that would be down 14% from these levels. He thinks it could take several months. All I can do is say ouch to that. Jeez. Okay, how about the weekly chart of the NASDAQ 100? That's the 100 largest non-financial stocks in the NASDAQ composite. You can see that the NAS has fallen sharply below its 50-day, I'm sorry, its 50-week moving average, which is the blue, okay, sharply below it. That's there, okay? Uh, And that's become now, this is going to become a new ceiling of resistance, all right? The MACD made a bearish crossover. Here we go again, okay, Uh, for the first time since March, uh, long Lang notes that the check in money flow, CMF, I'm doing a seminar with Mark. I love his stuff. Uh, it measures the level of buying and selling pressure is actually still in positive territory. I regard that as a, a, a glimmer of hope. But he says it's, it's, just, it's just been declining. And just imagine what happens when that goes negative. So to me, even though I thought that was a glimmer of hope, he doesn't see it that way. Um, meanwhile, the relative strength index, we call that the RSI. Okay, that's down here at the bottom. Uh, important momentum indicator has fallen, but it's still not quite oversold. Uh, which means the chart's not even signaling a short-term bounce. My oscillator says otherwise, so we're all a little conflict on this. Now, let's take a step back and check out the NASDAQ 100's longer-term monthly chart. Once again, the decline so far looks a lot less significant. Lang says the momentum here is weak, and has, the volume has been, been rising, okay, suggesting that there's more pain to come. The MACD's made a bearish crossover, once again, MACD, right here, okay? Uh, that's the first time since 2015. Is the NASDAQ 100 oversold? 
He says not even close, even after all this damage. The relative strength index is right in the middle. Of, uh, as a matter of fact, right here, you can see, not that down. Uh, it's actually closer to overbought than oversold right now. Jeez. Mm, right, what about small cap stocks? When you look at the weekly chart of the Russell 2000, holy cow, there is so much damage here, it's scary. Right? This small cap index, it's clearly the worst of the major indices. The Russell 2000 is trying to find support around 1450. It's struggling, okay? But it's already broken down below its 50-week moving average. This is really giving up the ghost. The MACD indicator is rolled over in September. It's never recovered. And mine points out that the volume here has been rising with heavy selling, uh, meaning big institutional money managers are dumping these small cap stocks. As for the Russell 2000's longer term monthly chart, well, I wouldn't be surprised if it heads all the way down to its 50 month moving average. That's down about 10% from here. MACD indicator just rolled over, giving us this rather ugly, bearish crossover right here. Uh, and he says there's more pain to come from that. Lang thinks the negative momentum and the high volume selling here tell all you need to know about what's going to happen to the Russell's 2000 small cap index that so many people love. Put it all together, and Lang believes that it's too, start to start pick, too soon to start picking at this market. In fact, he says buying here would be like trying to catch a falling knife. Sooner or later, the worst will be before uh, sooner or later, the worst will be ahead of us. We're, we're not there yet. Tough stuff here. Bottom line. The charts of the major indices as interpreted by Bob Lang suggest we're not out of the woods, not even close. Lang thinks we could have a lot more downside. I think it's okay to pick here myself. I like that some real down and outers rally today. I also think we're way too oversold to get hammered here, at least for now. But I respect Bob's opinion, and you need to know that there has been substantial technical damage that's been done to this market. And after this respite, it might not be done going down. John in New York. John! Jim, I have a stop the bleeding booyah to you. I like that. I need a booyah at this point. What's going on? Okay. All right. This question regards uh, account management. Uh, if we have multiple accounts, meaning uh, IRAs, whether it's traditional or Roth, and discretionary stock accounts. Do we treat them the same as far as maintenance and managing those accounts? Well, look, I, yeah, I, I gave a talk today, and I, I have to tell you, I want to be really uh, careful of this. I am calling for if you're, one standard way to handle IRAs. You, you can pick some mad money to buy some stocks. Why don't we just do this? In both those situations, I just want to do S&P index funds, okay? Um, it, it, that it's right for both of them. And I really think that it's important to recognize that the S&P index funds, as Warren Buffett has taught us, is the best. But for indi- IRA allows individual stock picking. And that's why I encourage both S&P and individual stocks for your IRA, because it lets you do it. Let's go to Dan in Missouri, please. Dan. Hi, Jim. I'm a first-time caller. I love the show. My oh, question is going to be on AA, Alcoa. They seem to be cheap right now for position over the next few years. Aluminum demand is still expected to grow globally, and they've announced a stock repurchase program. Do you think it's the time to be bullish with AA? Uh, I love the quarter. It was a really, really good quarter. But if we're headed into a slowdown, uh, then I've got to tell you, I'm not going to be a buyer of Alcoa. And that's my biggest concern. A slowdown will definitely hurt it. All right, sure, we rallied today. But the charts, according to Bob Lai, suggest it's just a brief brief. Chartist believes we could have more downside. You know what? Got to respect Bob's opinion. Much more mad money ahead. This market may be giving you motion sickness, but it's nice to see that good news can still be considered good. Turn that my company up 10% at earnings. Then it's one company that has your heart and mind, and you may have never heard of it. I'll reveal the under-the-radar biotech play just ahead. All your calls, rapid fire. Tonight's just a lightning round. So stay with Kramer.
tomorrow. Kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Jim, welcome back. Good to have you. You know, it's good to be back. Yep. And remember, keep the faith. Don't just throw away stocks as everybody else is. Mr. Crowded. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. tough market. I always tell you that good things can still happen, not just with individual, not just with the market, but with individual stocks and very much in unlucky places. Take Kemet, that's K-E-M-E-T Corporation. It's a maker of basic electrical components with a stock that had been very, very, uh, let's say, uh, down and out for months. Back in September, we got a call in, uh, on the stock from Jay in New York. I wanted to give it another look. After roaring in the first half of the year, the darn thing went into a sickening slide, not because of anything the company did, but because investors were worried about Kemet's fate in an economy that might be slowing. This morning, though, Kemet reported a spectacular quarter. The company delivered a monster 26 earnings beat off of a 61-cent basis, higher than expected sales, up nearly 16% year-over-year. Management even rolled out a modest dividend. In short, business is very good at Kemet, which is why this stock served $2.79. That's nearly 16%. So what does this terrific beat mean? Let's check in with Per Olaf Luth. He's the CEO of Kemet Corporation. Learn more about the quarter and where the company's headed. Mr. Luth, welcome to Mad Money. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, sir, because this is your good first day time. to be talking about Kemet. I was going to say, absolutely. I want people to know what you guys <laughs> do, because in many ways, you may have triggered a much larger rally throughout the entire market because of how broad Kemet's components are used. So give us an overview. Yeah, I mean, we, we are uh, used in just about every application you can, you, know, you can conceivably think about. And we talk about Kemet is, may not be a, a household name, but we are pretty much in every household. And we cover the automotive sector, we cover the military, the medical, industrial, telecommunications. And, uh, you know, whenever there is voltage, you need uh, some of our things uh, to support the semiconductors uh, on the board. Now, what I felt when I read through uh, this incredible numbers was that a lot of people feel the Internet of Things has slowed. It's obvious from Kemet's numbers, since you are so broadly within the system, that to bet against the Internet of Things may be a stupid bet. I, I personally think so. I think what we're seeing is a trend and not a bubble. Yes, there's cyclical uh, things that may happen in the marketplace, and of course we will be affected by that as well. But I think actually we are just in the beginning of the digitization of society, and companies like us and others will benefit from that for a long time to come. Now, you have 15% of your business is in auto. Everyone tells us that that business is terrible. Are you seeing a negative bent to your auto distribution? No, uh, actually, auto is doing very well, uh, and we, we expect that part of our business to grow nicely. Uh, and if you just look at how many components are in newer cars, uh, not just from uh, you know, the, the electrification of the transportation sector, but also just uh, electronics in general. Uh, and uh, we, um, if you take a, a Tesla, for instance, we'll have upwards of 10, 12,000 MLCC components in it. And a IC, you know, a normal combustion engine car will may have two, two and a half thousand. So uh, we see uh, the, the need for these components to be growing quite nicely over the next many years. We like to judge in Mad Money about uh, companies' demand by how the gross margins are. Your gross margins were exceptional. That means you do have some pricing power? 
It, today, uh, what we are seeing is uh, no uh, de declining ASPs. Uh, we are used to declining ASPs in the electronics and, and IT market, of course, but uh, prices are stable and we see opportunities for price increases, which we are looking to do strategically and sustainably. We have felt that there is a PC boom that's happening. A lot of people have criticized us for that view, but we've been talking directly to the manufacturers. You are in a lot of circuit boards. I have to presume that you see no PC slowdown. No, we see PCs uh, growing, and I think companies, uh, just like our company internally, are, you know, we're changing PCs faster because the new, the new capability is, is uh, improving so much that you want to stay ahead of the curve if you want to have a good, good, good organization, and therefore you need to invest in IT, and that's good for us. I think people, you're, look, you got a great website, and it's got a really good video on it. But I think that you have to talk about what a tantalum capacitor is for our people who don't know Kemet. I, uh, I have to tell you, I was, I was not informed well enough on how to call about Kemet, but these are uh, pervasive in the, the way that you, and you really own this market. So tell people what they, why you use t uh, that particular material and why it works so well. Well, tantalum was invented by Bell Labs as to use as a solid capacitor right after the transistor was invented. So we've been, we've been doing tantalum capacitors for a long, long time. And basically the material gives you the opportunity to have the best volumetric efficiency, meaning per, uh, you know, uh, real estate unit, you get more out of a tantalum capacitor than any other. And therefore, uh, many uh, companies are using that capacity when, when power and, and speed uh, is, is of the essence. One last question. Uh, a lot of people feel there's a slowdown in telecom. 14% of your business is telecom. Clearly, that big a percentage, you can't see a slowing. You know, the, the, we, we have been talking about 5G for some time. And it's coming. I, I was in Shenzhen not long ago, and there was a, they were trying autonomous buses with the 5G system in town of Shenzhen. So 5G is coming, and we all know that more componentry is required to make 5G happen. So uh, uh, we're all looking forward to that. It hasn't even started really yet. Well, well, look, we needed to hear that. We needed to hear something positive. You just gave it to us. Thank you so much to Pair <laughs> Olaf Louf, Kemet Corporation. Guys, go to the website. There's a good video. You know exactly what they do. This is the kind of thing that busts the gloom of the semis. Man Bunny's back in for the break. It is time! It's time for the light record members of Raptor And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Daddy! It's time for the lightning round because we're starting with Eric in California. Eric! Booyah, Jim. How's it going? I, I, it's going very well. How about you? Okay, I'm been better if I didn't buy a Seagate ticker STS. Uh, Seagate's hard because it is so cheap. I absolutely see that it could rally a relief rally like Western Digital could rally. But I can't recommend them and I got so many great tech stocks that are down. I just can't. All right. Let's go to uh, John in Florida. John. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. RDS Okay, why buy Royal Dutch when you can buy BP? My Chapel Trust, which you can follow along by joining ActionAlertsPlus.com Club, has made this our biggest oil position. We keep buying it, and it yields 5.8%, and it reported one of the best quarters I've seen this whole different reporting period. Sean in Massachusetts. Sean! 
Yes, hello, Jim. Is that... Booyah, Jim. How's it going? Thank you for taking my call. Of and congratulations on the Super Bowl win. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I'm looking at BSBR. That's uh, Santander Bank in Brazil. It, it's actually That's... one of the few ways to play the sudden capitalist resurgence in Brazil. So buckle something there. Brazil may be a, a decent way to play it. I'm not going to fight you on that one. Let's go. He was up 5% today. Be careful. Let's go to Frank in California. Frank. Hi, Jim. Interested in Valero. I am, too. You know what? The spreads haven't gotten you. Know, look, as oil goes down, some people feel they're not going to make as much money at the pump. I think you buy the stock of Valero here. It's down very badly. Yield 3.55%. How about Jeff in New York? Jeff. Hey, Jim. Love your show. Thank you, buddy. Uh, yeah, Boyd Gaiman. Uh, should I continue to hold it? Yes. Its stock is down way too much, and there's a lot of gambling being done in the U.S. You don't have any China exposure. What's that to like? How about we go to James in Pennsylvania? James. Yes, hello, Jim. James. This is James from Philly. How are you? Man, I'm doing pretty good. You know, we just got Golden Tate, so I'm real happy. What's happening to you? Yeah, so am I. Thank you for taking my call. No problem, I'm calling about Square with the leaving with the guy leaving the CFO for the Square and the pullback. Do you think it's time to start nibbling? I was over in London this weekend, and all everyone could talk about who's in this space was saying, "Well, I, yeah, we were talking with some Irish people, Northern Irish people, and she's from Northern Ireland." They said, "Well, look, how can you buy Square without Sarah Fryer?" I think there's more to the stock than just Sarah Fryer. Um, and I actually think that it's okay to buy right here. And that's that's my case. Let's go Richard in Colorado. Richard. Richard. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. I have a question about CBRE. I got it because it involved commercial real estate and it's global. But now I'm wondering in these terrible times whether that's global and commercial real estate is the right. Well, I think, and this is something that I want Jerome Powell to hear, I genuinely believe that commercial real estate is the next shoe to drop in this big kind of rolling slowdown that I'm worried about. So CBRE is going down with that. Now, CBRE, I'm sure, will say, listen, everything's hunky-dory. That's not the point. The point is what's going to happen. And I'm going to say I don't want to touch commercial real estate. And that, ladies and gentlemen, Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Look, for those of you who are worried about a slowdown in the economy, maybe the Fed gives us one, you might want to load up on some drug stocks here, including this, maybe some of the smaller, more speculative biotechs that you might like. Companies like Myocardia. It's a $2 billion biotech that's focused on treating the number one cause of death worldwide. It's cardiovascular disease. Myocardia has multiple products in the pipeline, but the biggest one is a phase three treatment for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a condition where part of your heart gets too thick and that interferes with its ability to pump blood. Now, the company held a research and development event today where they provided some new data on the most advanced pipeline candidates. The stock barely budged. That seems wrong to me. So could myocardia be worth picking up here or is the market maybe still too perilous for these kinds of stocks? Let's dig deeper with Tasso Giannakakos. He's the CEO of Myocardia. Myocardia. To learn more about this company and its prospects, Mr. Giannakakos, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Thank you. Have a seat. Thanks for having me. Well, I think it's uh, it, it's high time people realize what's the biggest killer of people and how few companies are really trying to do something about it. So why don't you tell us how myocardia is stepping into the breach? Yeah, I think you, you mentioned it. The number one killer of all women and men worldwide. 
we're seeing it's one-third of all people die from a cardiovascular disease. And then when you look at that, you think there'd be a ton of innovation happening in the world's number one global disease burden. And instead, we're seeing the opposite. We're seeing fewer numbers of drugs getting approved over the last 18 years. So there's been a tremendous lack of innovation in this area, and that's why Myocardia was born. Our entire purpose is to focus on deep disease expertise, which is the only way to get the breakthroughs here. And that's been challenging for people to do until now. Okay, so what we've known, and we've had all the companies on, we've had major companies like Medtronic on, which talks about, they make devices. This is not a device that you're working on. No, we're actually, we're designing specific therapies we call with an approach that's called precision medicine. So we really research deeply the underlying biology, the cause of these diseases. This is something that has been challenging for cardiovascular medicine. We think about genetics, we think about imaging, we look at family history, and we design specific drugs that are aimed at the cause of the disease. So in so doing, we're hopeful that not only are we gonna improve symptoms, but we're gonna restore people to normal living and potentially even reverse the course of the disease, something that's never really been done before in cardiovascular medicine. Current standard of care is what? So these are 40 or 50 year old drugs that have been designed for other conditions. So the standard of core is pretty, pretty poor here. We're talking about beta blockers and things that really... You're talking about beta blockers Beta still? blockers, yeah. I mean, beta blockers, when I was born, they had beta blockers. Yeah, no, it's true. And so in some situations, they can provide some symptomatic support, but they're not really getting at the underlying cause. And we're seeing a lot of breakthroughs in other disease areas where transformative therapies that are applying this precision approach are coming, patients are benefiting. We've got to do this in cardiovascular disease, and we're leading the charge for that. Now, when people have heart failure, so to speak, is it too late for the things that you're designing? Not necessarily. So one of the biggest outcomes of these heritable cardiomyopathies is sudden death, um, AFib, and heart failure. So often, unfortunately, we're picking up diagnosis when patients are coming in and they're feeling short of breath and they're limited in their function. So these are exactly the patients that we're actually currently studying in our pivotal trial. We're studying symptomatic patients who have severe disease, New York Heart Association class two or three. So they're already down a path and we're looking to bring them back. Okay, so let's say there are people who are watching and say, you know what, I've got a bad diagnosis. My cardiologist is telling me this. Can you get this into a test, into a study? Well, we have studies underway right now. You can look at clinicaltrials.gov. We have a couple that are underway, two that are ongoing for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where the heart thickens, and one that's underway for dilated cardiomyopathy, which is the opposite. The heart is a little bit too weak, and it stretches, and the muscle walls are really thin. So Sanofi, which is a huge company, is choosing, uh, choosing myocardia to partner with. How did that come about? Yeah, so about six years ago or so, when, when the company was getting going, um, there was a lot of interest in the, the drug area and in big pharmaceutical companies to think about a way to get at this unmet medical need. We all recognize that the need is there, but historically they've been looking at very, very large clinical studies that cost a lot of money and take a lot of time and usually don't work out. So we came around with this fresh approach. They've had some experience with similar approaches in other disease areas, with Sanofi in particular with their Genzyme unit, which is looking at rare sure. disease. And, you know, and the leadership at that time was thoughtful enough to say, this is an area we want to invest deeply in, we want to partner with myocardia in. The science made sense, and now we're on three years into the collaboration. We're making a whole lot of progress in a very short period of time. Uh, one last thing that I always wanted to ask, because I think it's important, is 
does the company need money? Because I always tell people, listen, if they need money, maybe they do a, a, an offering and they can get in on that one. Yeah, we're fortunate enough. We're well capitalized. We've got uh, over $400 million in the bank, which moves us into 2020, which is well past a number of value inflection points. We're essentially uh, releasing important clinical data about once every one or two quarters now. And so we're in good shape. It'll get us through the readout of our pivotal study in HCM, which is the second half of 2020. So we just got to keep going with great science and hopefully we'll be able to help some patients. Well, many of us, including my family, are cheering for you and hope that you have the breakthroughs that you're describing. That's Tasso Giannakakos, the CEO of Myocardia. I don't know, I've read through all the documents. It's, it's a pretty interesting company. They have money's back at the break. Is Fang the undead? You know, I gotta tell you, people hate all the members of Fang now so much that even if they just do okay, even if they miss on the revenues, then people get excited. That's what happens when you get overly negative. Remember what I'm against? The power of negative thinking. It blinds you to opportunities, even if they're just short term. The power of negative thinking is not what you want to be. Like I said, there's always been more concerned. I promise I'll find it just for you. Right here on Mid Money. I'm Jim Kramer, and I'll see you tomorrow.